musical. Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest this evening is Tony McClellan. Tony is a marketing writer by day and a round-the-clock phrase gatherer. For two decades, she's written for major magazines and brands, including a stint as an outdoor family travel writer. She's also published essays with Outside, KitchenAid, and Fort Collins Magazine. Now she collaborates with brands and their amazing marketing teams to help them find the right words. If she could do it all over again, she'd be a TV writer and show writer like Michael Schur or Pamela Adlin. For years, she thought she was going to write the great American novel, but her life took another path. In 2022, Tony started New to Me Phrases, a weekly newsletter dedicated to curiosity, language, and humor. She lives in a quaint town northwest of Chicago with her husband, their three neurodiverse and queer adult kids, three parrots, a fish named Al Capone, and a pink axolotl named Mimi. She describes writer motherhood in three words as need an office, and don't we all. Now, please join me in welcoming Tony. Hi there. <laughs> Hi, Tony. It's so great to have you back. The last time we saw you was when uh, we had a panel on um, non-gender specific children, non-gender binary children and, and motherhood. And um, it's a pleasure to have you back today. It's really great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Now, let's start with those three words you used to describe writer motherhood. Again, that was need an office, which resonates with me, as I'm sure it does with many listeners. Yes. So right before the pandemic hit, we relocated. We had lived in this little town of Woodstock for years. We went to Colorado for a couple of years, came back bought a house that did not afford space for me to have an office. And it's kind of a recurring thing that has happened where I've had to sacrifice my office for a family member, et cetera. So I just really don't have one. And then there's all of us on top of each other for a couple years now. Right. And fortunately we all get along. <laughs> we all like each other. Um, but I, I definitely like, I fantasize about like putting a tiny house in my backyard or getting an Airstream or just having something like a place to go. It used to be coffee shops for me, you know, but I have asthma. I really have no interest in getting COVID over and over again. So um, my, my husband used to joke, he would call it, you need an F office. Like, I don't know if we can swear on here, but that's yeah, what we call yeah. it. <laughs> so <my fuck> office, basically, <laughs> just tell everybody to F off so yeah. I can concentrate. But I really had, I was thinking about this today, thinking about being on the show and I realized, though, that I I do get a lot from taking time alone. Like I'm I'm always fifty fifty introvert extrovert, and but I I miss my people too. Like I think that I'm not the toilet away in a cabin for months on end writer. I think it's just that I need consistent breaks in order to use my brain without being interrupted nonstop, which I kind of am right now. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I feel like um, I've seen a lot of people, specifically mothers lately, talking about that old thing about writing every day and at the same time and how that just is um, some weird patriarchal um, 
a piece of advice that's been passed down through the decades and it just doesn't work, especially for working mothers or just for mothers, period. Um, and it certainly doesn't work for me. So I, I'm interested in what you're saying that you, you can kind of um, work in bursts and find space to really dive deep into a project where you're not interrupted. And that's how I get most of my work done as well as to take like a two day retreat or something. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, it's so funny because for years I was like, why can't I be like X writer? You know, she, she toils away at her desk eight hours a day and she produces so much and she's so great and this and that. And at age 45, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was talking to my therapist and I, I brought up something like, um, I was, I'm thinking about making some videos with my kids about what if your, ba- what if a bagel was your best friend and we'd take the bagel to the park and stuff. And she kind of looked at me and she was like, has anyone ever talked to you about whether or not you have ADHD? And we went, you know, she ran me through the tests and it was like, you know, picture of me next to each, every trait, you know. And it really hit home for me. It was such a great discovery because it like when you're diagnosed with something like that, there's like a through line through your whole life. Like every teacher that told me to sit still or to not sit in a weird way or to stop daydreaming or because why study women? Why study girls? Why nobody knew anything? That's my running joke about you know, medical studies is why study women? Why study? So why would that hurt anyone, right? <laughs> you know, even still, it's harder to diagnose girls and women um, with autism, uh, autism, ASD, um, ADHD. And it, it's because it's like heart attack. The symptoms are different, right? So for me, it's it was really like, oh, I can write a paragraph and walk around the block. And write a paragraph and walk around the block and write a paragraph and walk around the block. And that works for me. Like there's something about and I understand hyper focus now, which is an aspect of ADHD, where um, contrary to popular belief that we can't concentrate on anything, we we love extremes. <laughs> so concentrate on nothing and then concentrate on only one thing for six hours. Yes. Give me that. I love that. And so it's really helped me be able to shape my work and to not beat myself up so much for lacking discernment that's another thing like ADHDers have no sense of time that's another like really wild one we have no sense of time and so my therapist has worked with me through the years bless that woman um so like time block not in any sort of strict like you must follow this schedule speaking of patriarchal like weird you know um but like to really visually be able to see oh shit I only have three hours today to think so I need to kind of plan for my thinking time. Um, that's been a huge, huge benefit. And then the lack of discernment piece is like we want to pay attention to everything and we want to do everything. If you ask me my, for my favorite movie, I will tell you five movies. There is, you know, there is no there can be only one for someone with ADHD. <laughs> so as a mom, it has meant creating in the in between spaces, those little interstitial moments, you know, Um, when the house is quiet, I'm a morning person, but I've been finding since the pandemic that I get the most done after dinner because everyone's off on their own. It's, it's quiet. The the pets are going to sleep, you know, (laughs) and you have a lot of pets there. (laughs) We do. We do. It's yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about ADHD and, um, you know, adult diagnosis of ADHD. And I think, and this is just sort of on a personal note, I think my mother um, possibly has ADHD or is on the spectrum somewhere. And it was just never diagnosed. She's in her 70s. And my sister and I brought it up to her. She's like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of figured that out about myself a long time ago. But it just wasn't really something, um, you know, as she was growing up and even into her adulthood that was talked about or that was even um, positioned as a possibility. So tell me a little bit again about how it felt to be asked that question and to explore that part of yourself that did it just kind of seem like it was always part of yourself that you you were you were kind of wondering about and a piece fell into place. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I used to joke about it. I mean, it, I, my my standard line about it is it's the least surprising diagnosis anyone's ever received, you know. Um, so, yeah. And like for your mom and like my parents generation, my parents are a little bit older um, or were. Um, this wasn't done. You don't go to therapy. You don't talk about your feelings. You don't take pills, you know, brain pills. No. Why would you do that? That's a, and that's a sign of weakness. I mean, the whole, I mean, just barrier after barrier after just socially imposed barrier after socially imposed barrier, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my, I'm Gen X, and I think my Gen is much more open to therapeutic interventions, you know. Um, and I, I tried, um, one of the stimulants. It, it was okay. Um, I've actually tried a different medication, um, that is really helping me. Um, because I have this sidecar to ADHD, anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Holy Trinity for neurotypicals, <laughs> neuroatypicals. Um, so, I mean, it, it wasn't surprising. It was a relief. It, it was really a relief. Like, okay, now there are tools and techniques that I can employ and like this, like level of grace and understanding. Like I'm not defective or I'm not any more defective than anybody else. You know, uh, I'm just different and I have different needs and I need to respect those. Grace and understanding from yourself. Yes. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at that midlife phase where it's like, I don't need grace and understanding from anybody else. <laughs> just in full hag mode at this point. So. <laughs> That's a good place to be. I think I'm almost there. I, I look forward to the full hag, full on hag. It's, I'm like half hag. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's I love it. I love oh, I love it here. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us a little bit about your three children who you said are also neuroatypical. Um and how mm-hmm. your own diagnosis maybe has helped you to navigate um theirs. Um it's it's been really interesting because they're all Gen Z. So my kids are 23, 20 and 18. So all adults, all vote, all registered voters. Yay. Um, and I think an even more interesting through line than just me was, um, my father-in-law, we were pretty sure that he was on the spectrum. And as my middle son with ASD was being diagnosed, typically known as Asperger's, but the the nomenclature changes through the years right now, it's ASD. Um, 
it healed my father-in-law much as my diagnosis healed me where my father-in-law was like, Oh, 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 <laughs> like, wow. And my mother-in-law kept pointing it out. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And so it was kind of cool to see the two generations heal each other. Like we were finding answers for our son and my father-in-law was finding answers for himself. And that was really cool. Um, with my kids and me, we didn't have as much of that experience, but it was more like, we joke around a lot. I'll be like, sorry, sorry for your brain. That's on me. <laughs> um, you know, one, one of my kids has ADHD. Another one has been diagnosed with it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's in our families, you know, both things are in our families. I'm a hundred percent convinced both of my parents were ADHD. Yeah. Um, so yeah. do you find, um, that with the, how do I want to say this with the, the change in generations and now, you know, therapy is much more sort of mainstream. I also grew up feeling like therapy was for those who are weak or like who really need mental, you know, assistance and stuff. And I go to a therapist, I take medication for anxiety um, as well. And it's just, it's just a thing, right. And it's a tool yeah. now that we can use, but did you find that with that shift in acceptance, um, uh, well, how did you, I, I will back up. How was that shift in acceptance for you as you sort of uh, grew up and, and transitioned into therapy and, and took matters into your own hands, so to speak? It was very incremental for me because um, part of my anxiety, this is how anxious I am. I So I love Google Docs where I collect things. It's just one of my hoarding shiny object things. Google Doc of all of the things that make me anxious that I'm too anxious to share any, with anyone because I'm scared it'll make them anxious too. Um, it's very like, oh, and I was scared to take meds. I was, I was just outright like, it's going to change me or it's going to make me a zombie or it's look at the side effects and the side effects are no joke. Like the side effects are no joke and they vary person to person, etc. You know, they're no fun, but I'm, I'm at the point where, I'm no longer in a complete state of panic all the time or having suicidal ideations. I'll take the side effects. Thank you. Like it took me a long time and I was very into um, alternative health for a long time. And uh, God bless the maintenance phase podcast. Can we plug another podcast? Have you heard of maintenance phase? It's been yeah. debunks the wellness, wellness industry. Um, but it was always like, and I'm not dunking on alternative wellness for this, but it was kind of like I made a lot of excuses. Like if, oh, what if we give the kids magnesium or what if we give, what if I took this? What? Because I was scared to put my kids on meds, too. It's, as a parent, it is very scary, it, it, especially if you're anxious like me and you're afraid of medication. Like it, it's a whole journey. I started an essay that I never finished, which is classic me. About like my son and I both starting a medication, one of my sons and I starting the same medication on the same day, like, and just me hold, like sitting there with that pill in my hand, like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, this is happening. Um, and that child has said, it's like night and day, my anxiety, it's like night and day now, like they can actually like cope with existing, you know, why would I want to deny my kid that? And I, I fully recognize that. There's so much we don't know about these meds. 
I, I fully get it. Like 20 years from now, it, it's going to be like, oh, my God, you put your children on that. You know, I mean, I, I fully accept that. But we have the science that we have right now. We have the data that we have right now. I trust my medical providers and my shrink. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned an essay that you didn't finish and how that's typical for you. But you've also finished many, many essays. Um, so tell us what, yeah, and travel writing as well, but shift over to writing and tell us a little bit about your body of work, um, maybe starting with the essays and working toward um, the other uh, projects that you work on while I get a little blanket for my feet because I'm cold. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'm wearing like like my shearling boots because this is an old house and um, <laughs> it's not, the walls are clearly not insulated. So. Oh, yes. Same. Um, yeah, yeah. Um I actually I wrote a poem this summer about going on meds. Um, I wrote I wrote a, an essay about um, trying to manage your sex life when your spouse travels full time. <laughs> That's one. My children refuse to read that. They also don't read my newsletter, and I, it's a running joke that they don't read it. Um, which it's so funny because like you know you think they're your little pals and stuff, but it's like no, they're like they're all own autonomous people, and if you think about all your friends, like they don't want to interact with their parents on that level either. Not that I make my kids my pals, but it's just like one of those like weird things. Um, I, um, I wrote one about um, my beautiful friend who helped me learn how to garden during the pandemic. Um, she like knows all the Latin names. It's like, disturbing how much she knows. I don't even know the English names for plants. Honestly, but <laughs> It's so great. And like, she loves sharing her plant knowledge. And so I, I wrote about that, like the generosity of gardeners. And so shout out Kathleen. Um, and I wrote one about chronic pain and, and learning to have to um, step back from doing the things I love the most um, due to a catastrophic injury and just having what one surgeon called shitty genetics. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's kind of, the topics range. I have another essay that I haven't sold yet and I still haven't figured it out, but it's about my mother-in-law and losing her to uh, like dementia that came on suddenly after an illness. Um, so it was like snap. It was there was no gradual decline. It was like viral. Something happened to her brain. And I wrote an essay about her and another woman in my life who have been really significant role models. I haven't figured out how to rework that one i just haven't figured it out yet but that yeah someday i want to get that one out in the world as a tribute to those women and uh, we could go in any of those directions but i'm gonna go to, <laughs> i'm gonna follow the first one that you mentioned sex life when you're in spouse because <laughs> i think that's a fun one so tell us a little bit about that essay <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was so funny because like one weekend he came home and I was sick and another weekend he came home and he was sick and it was just like, you know, and sometimes he would come home and I, I was dealing with a lot of pain and I would be like, this is our only chance. It, it was almost like you have to schedule it in. And that was annoying because it's like, oh, there's no more spontaneity, you know? And so that was, that was just kind of the crux of it was just <laughs> the things you learn, you know, we've been married now 25 years, you know, and you learn a lot about each other through different life phases. You go through so many changes and that that particular job, which did eventually grow really hard on us, like just him being gone. all He was gone weekdays, you know, for weeks on end. And he'd be home on the weekend. He'd fly home on the weekend. His mom was ailing. So one week in a month, he would fly out to see his mom. 
I mean, so it was just a lot of separation. And then like when it, it was almost like the perfect conditions had to align for us to get together, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I love that writing that essay mortifies my kids on some level. It really (laughs) brings me deep joy to horrify them. (laughs) No, I can, um, yeah, solidarity. I have said on the show before that my daughter sleeps in bed with me. Um, which started during the pandemic when she was lonely and scared. And so how do you tell like a four year old that she can't, you know, have company at night, but it's persisted. So now she sleeps in bed with me and my husband has moved to the couch because we only have a queen size bed and she takes yeah. it. Um, and so the only times that we really have to be intimate are if my parents take my daughter for a night and that happens every six months, maybe. And, like, the last time that happened, one of us got food poisoning. So it was like, uh, (laughs) I will have to read that article for some tips on how to (laughs) keep the flame going or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. It's on my website. I linked to it on my website. The magazine is since folded. It was Fort Collins Magazine back when I was living in Colorado. Uh, It was a really, really well-done magazine. A lot of it, it was one of those regionals, so a lot of ads, just ad-based. But they folded during the pandemic, I think. But it's still available online, so. Okay. Yeah, we'll link to it. It's called um, the best laid plans. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Speaking of puns and wordplay and everything, tell us about your newsletter. So this is one of those things where it's real. It's, it has been during the pandemic where I finally realized, like, so I I have a knack for dialogue. I definitely have a knack for writing fiction. And through the years, I have never been able to finish a novel. And again, ADHD, no surprise there. And I know there are plenty of authors with this neuroatypical scenario, but, um, and no ideas for fiction were coming to me. They just, it was like, I realized that like essays and nonfiction and memoir appealed to me more. And I just started letting go of the idea that I'm going to write and sell a novel. And and it's interesting when you let go of something like that, what space opens up for other things. And so one of my many Google Docs, I also have a Google Doc where I just say funny headlines. Um, but I was collecting new to me phrases and they were just funny word mashups. And so the very first one was corn fart. And it was like. And I, somehow I talked it in a Google Doc and I was like, and it was, that was, and I wrote about it in one of the newsletters. It was like, um, an artist based, um, I think in Mexico just made a t-shirt that says corn fart and there's like an ear of corn. I don't even get it. It was like, it was a subject line in an email just said corn fart. And I was like, that's really something. That's just really something. And then I started collecting them and it, my first idea was, no attribution, no explanation, just save the phrases because they're amusing to me. And then the more phrases I started gathering from other people, because like if if someone can, if anyone out there is listening and you can pay me to read long form journalism and narrative nonfiction for the rest of my life, sign me up. I'm ready. I love <laughs> reading both of those things. Um, I realized that I wanted to credit those people, you know. Um, so then I started making, so now this Google doc is massive. It's like almost 60 pages long and it's getting hard to open the thing. Like I'm going to have to start a second Google doc. And I thought, what the hell, why don't I 
like start sharing these? Why don't I just, I wanted a creative outlet too, because I was so, so burnt out two years into the pandemic. I was just crispy fried. I'd let go of fiction. I had no ideas for essays because I didn't leave my house or go anywhere. And I didn't want to complain about the pandemic in my essays. Uh, I do that with my friends, you know? So I was like, let's do this. Let's just see if it, if it would catch on with other people. And so here we are. New to me phrases was born. I couldn't think of a better name for it. So it stayed NTMP and it's on Substack. Um, I haven't, I haven't decided if I'm going to stay on Substack or not. So I haven't redirected the URL yet, but I own, I own the URL too. I, I hoard those too. So fair. <laughs> I love all of your Google Docs. This is like, <laughs> it's amazing. I also love Google Docs for that reason. You can open them up like on your phone and just add something and yeah. Oh yeah. And. Then- all of my friends know about this. So like they'll just, I won't hear for, from someone for months and they'll just send me, you know, monkey Butler, you know, and it's like, and somebody sent me one the other day and she just wrote in all caps for the document, you know? And so in the newsletter, I'll credit, you know, a lot of times I'll say my pal, Tim sent me this, my pal, that sent me that. So it's, it's this beautiful collaborative thing where I do get to give writers credit and, uh, or, you know, phrase seekers credit, you know, my, my, another friend just sends me screen caps of funny tweets and there, there'll be a phrase in there. So then I mention who wrote the tweet, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and it's the most, like the most fun I've ever had writing. It is so much fun. I love it so much. It never feels like work. And I, I don't think that all writing should feel this way. Like, I don't think, you know, that whole, what's that, that saying, like, you you don't feel like you're working and that's how you know you found your thing. It's like, no, some, some writing really does need to be effortful. We really do need to dig deep for it. But there's just something about this that has broken open my creative self again. Like I re, you know, I've been, I was drag kicking and screaming into marketing writing. And uh, after the magazine world dried up, like I started out writing for magazines and then I, I pivoted to marketing. I make much better money, much faster than I ever did writing for magazines. And I did pretty well writing for magazines. Um, but I was crispy burnt because I wrote to um, not have to feel constant terror during the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I get that. And as somebody also who has done marketing and marketing writing, uh, oh. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I like it. I do like it now. Like I, the cool thing too, is that I've come around. I, 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 I'm lucky. I have amazing clients. Um, You know, one of my friends says you know, she has a no assholes rule. I'm not going to work with assholes and being self-employed. You get to make that call, right? Like not every team is, a, is perfect. Self-employment is not some kind of pipe dream where every hour is your own and whatever. I mean, you still have to answer to clients. You still have to answer people. You still have to, you don't get paid time off, et cetera, you know, but um, I now really enjoy the challenge of how can I tell a story that will be compelling to my clients readers? How can I create something? And so you can bring storytelling into it in ways that I think can be fun and playful at times. Not all projects are like that, you know, um, but when I get the opportunity, it's, it's a lot of fun to infuse personality and story um, and help move the needle for someone that's 
maybe trying to do something good in the world. You know, that's that to me is like the magic combo. You know, one of my biggest clients is a community college. I am team community college. I don't know how or when making fun of community college became a thing. I'm sure there's so many like classes stuff operating there, but there's such a benefit to our communities. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, just team CC all the way. Right. So it's, that that work has meaning for me, but it's not my I still always want my stories, my creative things, my it's just separate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I understand that. Yeah. So what is it? Just go back a little bit to the newsletter and how it's sort of broken open a new creative vein for you. Or um, is it that it allows you to be sort of playful on the page or draw that out a little bit for us? Yeah, yes, it does allow me to be playful. Um, it's it, because it's not just sharing funny phrases. A lot of times the phrases are just interesting. And so for me, it's a way of chasing curiosity and, and, and even sharing the connection of, I read this newsletter and they quoted this website and this website had this phrase on it and this phrase is really cool. And so it's kind of like all those little touch points. And then getting to kind of nerd out about, you know, this is the actual name of a bird that went extinct in so such and such. It's a delightful phrase. And so it's kind of like this, my love of knowledge, my thirst for knowledge with humor. Um, I Several of the phrases are really artful dunks on Trump, which I will, I'm just petty to my core and always enjoy. Um, I see less of them now and I kind of feel like, but earlier on, I think there's probably like a 14 of them or something that are just like chef's kiss, very funny. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just this whole mashup of all these different things. There's really profound stuff in there and then things like corn fart, right? <laughs> so it's, and giving myself permission to create this has allowed me to start turning my eyes to what, what else do I want to, what do I really want to create? What am I what am I here for? If it's not going to be the great American novel and I'm not going to get to be the next Michael Shore, because quite frankly, I'm just too tired, too tired. I don't want to go to L.A. or New York. I want to be a goblin in my house. <laughs> right? So what else, what else, you know, and so I'm getting back into podcasting, which that I'll. I'll share stuff about that like next year when that's coming, like an old a buddy of mine and I are going to um, do a new new. We used to do a show a few years ago that we're going to do something. And I was it's just, you know, I started experimenting with poetry this summer. I have been I've started what could become a memoir all since just giving myself permission to write that newsletter. I, I've been toying around with a series of essays about being in a body and, and being, being a woman at this point in our culture um, and leaving diet culture mm-hmm. and being a fat woman in this culture um, and living with chronic pain and like not being able to do the thing. So it's kind of like all these inner twisted, like the health piece and then the decades of dieting only to still end up fat. <laughs> Right. And it's like the mental health thing. Right. If I could only just try, if I could just just try a little harder, you know, where the research shows diets don't work. They don't they don't work. Not like 95 to 98 percent of the time. 
it just leads to disordered eating. So, yeah, it just from a one dumb newsletter, like I call it my dumb newsletter. And I, I love that newsletter with my whole heart. But it's all of these. It kind of it's opened the floodgates for me to show up as me in my writing and in other things that I create, which is pretty incredible. amazing. Like, I, I think if anyone were to ask me for advice, like do that, find a playground, find like a writing playground, find a creative playground that that you just might not even think means all that much and just dedicate it yourself to it for a while and just play and see what comes, what else shows up. That's amazing. And actually a good transition to you possibly sharing a little bit of what's come up. So um, you mentioned you wrote a poem over the summer, if you'd like to read that or anything of your choosing um, that you have since sort of landed upon after (laughs) having written this newsletter. Okay. I think I pulled up my chronic pain essay, and I'm just going to read a couple graphs from that. Yeah, please. I'll give you the whole screen here. So, oh, oh God. Take it away, Tony. I'm just going to read and not look at my face on the whole screen because it's like really, oh, my God. Um, thank you. Um, this is just kind of partway in, but um, there's a quote. It's easy for people to fetishize. So the name of the essay, I didn't choose this name. I can't remember what I named it, but it's called Chronic Pain Changed the Way I Think About Sufferfests. When your love for the outdoors meets chronic pain, you grieve and then you adapt. And so um, it's easy for people to fetishize discomfort, the good pain of hard work outdoors, when they don't live with the chronic suffering and discouragement that comes from having a sick body. Outside's Blair Braverman once wrote in her Tough Love column. So even if you don't buy into our cultural obsession with youth, it's easy enough to assume that if you stay active, good health will persist even as you age. This calculated optimism makes it tough to go from effortlessly strong and healthy to settling for the crumbs of endurance that chronic pain allows you on any given day. I wasn't sure how I could manage this decline in such a big part of my identity, hiking with the ghost of the adventurer I once was. Um, and I, I conclude it with um, pain forced me to rethink my own obsession with metrics and the drive to suffer in surf- service of one-upping myself. It's been frustrating to recalibrate my expectations, but slowing down and doing less gave me the unexpected gift of learning to be fully present in the wild places I love so much. Hiking shorter trails I used to dismiss as a waste of time. My senses can more fully open up to my surroundings. A patch of moss here, an unfamiliar bird call there, the spring of loamy earth under a body still able to move under its own power. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. I'm proud of that one. Yeah, it's beautiful. Remind us where we can read it. That is on Outside Online. Okay. So, And I link to it also from my website. So if you want me to send anything, I can for show notes, whatever. But, yeah, yeah. I'm really proud of that one. I Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What was the reception? Did you have people reach out to you? Um, A, cu- a couple of readers wrote to me with, like, alternative cure stuff because it was it was about being diagnosed with um like spinal stenosis and um degenerative degenerative disc disease which it turns out like people over 50 most of us have it and we don't even know it like there's a huge something like 80 percent of people have it don't even know it and go the rest of their lives without even realizing it it's just like one of the one theory is it's like a downside of going upright 
instead of staying on all fours. So, um, but a couple people with chronic pain wrote me and said, thank you. I just feel so seen by this. And that's, that's why we write, right? It's to, to create that connection to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is my experience, but maybe you can see yourself in that too. And we can, you know, reflect together. So. Yeah. yeah. And actually that leads us to the, the last time you were on the show in the panel um, about uh, non-binary parents and children. And you shared with us a little bit about your own child's journey. Um, so remind us a little bit of, of um, where you are in, in that path, in that journey, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. and give us an update. Well, here's one time I'm really glad my kids don't pay attention to my work because um, it is a scary time to be a parent of queer kids and trans kids. It is a really scary time. Um, I So I my oldest son is gay and my youngest child is my daughter is trans and um, she is doing pretty well. The what I have found in general for all of us is the pandemic has taken a tremendous toll on our ability to be people outside of our house. Um, we, we have not been the family that's just been like wild and free and back to normal. And, you know, um, I have enough friends with, with long-term COVID long COVID. Um, so I, I think without, you know, giving away too much stuff about her, I want to protect her privacy, but she's had some struggles for sure. And, um, you know, the trans dysphoria, which is is kind of like this um, to really I hope I don't mangle how to explain this because I understand it in my own mind, but I don't really know the clinical. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, you know, the the friction you feel and the trauma and anxiety that you feel when you don't pass, when you know inside that you're female or male, but you're not passing. So that can cause a lot of stress. And so her fear of not passing is a huge source of anxiety for her. And, um, 18, just to remind yeah, she's 18. Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, you know, and she's painfully shy. Oh. And so, and her bestie moved away in April 2020. So he's, he's back in Illinois, which is great. And he's been 100% accepting of her transition, which is, Yay to non-toxic masculine friends, right? Um, yeah, so, and I don't know what she knows about the current groomer thing that people have started up as, like, let's, let's smash this minority group in order to gain power, <laughs> which is all that that's about. There's no concern for children. It's just a bald power grab that is setting back LGBTQ rights decades, endangering people, endangering careers. It's just the soullessness of it grinds at me. I can just be completely frank. Um, As a parent, it is terrifying. It is. And yet we have pride flags out front. I, I wear my proud mom trans tee around and it's, it'll be, it's interesting, you know, who, how you get received in a small town. We're a liberal small town and we're trans friendly small towns, pretty rare, but we're in Illinois, which is around Chicago. It's more liberal. Um, you know, I, uh, I encountered some transphobia during a focus group for my city. 
and yeah, yeah, some woman started talking about um, that Woodstock's considered woke and that um, we have this parade here and this and that. And I, I'm the only one in a mask in the room, and I said, I'm 100% great with all of that. Sign me up, you know, and so I didn't make any friends in that room, um, and I, I called out the homophobia, and uh, yeah, the poor marketing team had to separate us basically from arguing. That's my question, I guess, you know. Um, it's hard. It's it's hard. You know, I, I'm almost speechless. Like, yeah. how things are going. Um, you know, I don't, it is important to me, though, not to pass that on to my kids. Like, and I don't know if that's right or wrong. We talk about things honestly. Like, there are certain places you can't live, honey, because it won't be safe for you. Right? Like, um it's rough. It's it's really rough. And that's for me as a mom. Imagine being the individual who is being scapegoated for political power. Yeah. For no reason other than they're yeah. not as powerful as the people who want to keep themselves in power. Yeah. It's just it's gross. It is. And I was going to ask you this, but I think you've already touched on it. So maybe just draw it out a little bit more. But tell me how you navigate the. Um, tension between fear for your child and being a supportive advocate for your child. And like, that must be such a hard position to be in where you, where you're afraid of others, you know, actions or reactions, but you want to be supportive of their true selves. How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've probably hit on, on that enough. I mean, I, there, there is a tension there in my hope for her is that um, she sees the beauty in herself that, that her, the rest of her family sees and that she, she won't be as afraid of not passing as time goes on, that it won't be as much of an issue for her. But there's a lot caught up in that of my own cishet privilege of saying, you know, well, don't worry about what other people think, you know, it's like, no, my life is in danger if I don't worry what other people think. Right. And she doesn't come across that way, but it is the reality, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's, it's a tough, it's, it is a delicate balance to navigate uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Me, the most important thing is I, I love you no matter what I support you. We're going to get you all the support. You know, she's in therapy. She has a great uh, Lurie Gender Clinic in Chicago, A+, plus if you're in the Chicago area. I believe they do sliding scale for families who don't have insurance or who have crappy insurance. Um, A+, plus, highly recommend. The staff there are incredible. Um, our family physician is phenomenal. Is Again, be, living in a liberal town and stuff, like, she's been going to this doctor her whole life. And they're like, oh, okay, you're, this is your name now. Okay, We'll change it on everything. Okay, great. Welcome. Like, and not all families get that. And it's, that's, an, that's something you don't think about, but like going and getting medical care, like, you know, she had a, a podiatry issue and I'm like, Oh God, how do I know if this practice is going to misgender her on purpose or yeah. be cruel to her or deny her care or like, yeah. Whole, the whole thing. And again, that's my worry. She's got to carry that too. So, uh, 
Tell me how that has affected you as a writer. I think we've got sort of how you're navigating it as a mother, but but how does it kind of play into your craft and your career, if at all? I don't know yet. I, I, I don't know yet. I It is not something that I have written about yet in terms of like essay or anything like that. Um, only because I feel like we're still in it. I, I don't know, like for essay writers, I think sometimes you need a little bit more in the rear view to be able to, to do that, you know, but it's, you know, I, at, at many points I was going to, and I knew a colleague who, um, she had a blog based around mothering boys, you know, and at one point I had that idea, like, oh, you know, mothering boys. Da, da, da. And then it's like, well, what if one of them turns out not to be a boy anymore? <laughs> you know? I don't know. So it's just it, it's. If if anything, you know, I've always been an ally. I've, I've always been an ally. And so it's so to me, it's so wonderful. And my husband is like the least homophobic man I've ever met. And so I think it's so wonderful that these kids came to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only I'm already empathetic, but the only way that it really impacts my work is um, to be that to be an ally with my clients to do things like have your pronouns on your Zoom call. Mm-hmm. That impacts my marketing work, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and just the empathy and and recognition of privileges. Um, for sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. It seems like such a small thing to put your pronouns on your on your Zoom call. But I mean, you see, I have mine here on uh, in StreamYard and it's yeah. it feels yeah. like something it's like the least we can do. Right. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think to do mine. I was so nervous. <laughs> no, it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's in my email. It's on my Zoom. And, and at first I was like, what if what if a client doesn't want to work with me because they see that? And I'm like, why the fuck would I want to work with someone who's transphobic? Like, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I don't need your money. Need that's your just money. the first hint that that's a nightmare client, right? So you don't need yeah. those people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It was like in that focus group meeting, everyone was congenial and nice. And then when the bigotry came out, it was like, wow, this is what this room is about. And I was the only person who said anything. And it was like, it's so... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where that's going to end up in my work, quite frankly. I really don't, other than to just try to show up and be as much of an ally as I can and to be a safe person for people. You know, because it's it's like when you when you speak out about someone who's being racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, you don't know who else in the room can't speak out or is afraid to speak out. Um, and you do it for them. You don't do it for you. You do it for them. Yeah. I think that's one of the best definitions of an ally that I've heard. I think that's such a fraught word. Um, I know. Because you can be sort of a false ally or, you know, a self-serving ally. But I think you just articulated that beautifully and that it's about being an ally for a person um, and what they need. Yeah. And and you offer that. So, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I live with this fantasy of. So, um, you know, I, I have a child with a disability and my brother has Down syndrome. So I grew up with a sibling with a, um, IDD, intellectual developmental disability. And 
the the idea of one of my favorite long form essays is about the curb cut effect. <laughs> um, and shame on me for not remembering her name, but I I'm frankly terrible with details unless I have them written down. So, um, but a sociologist wrote about this about um, in Berkeley when they did the first curb cuts ramps for wheelchair access, they observed that mothers with strollers. Delivery people with dolly carts, skateboarders were all using it. And the curb cut effect kind of explains that when you make access available for everyone, it benefits the broader society. And diversity, equity, and inclusion benefits the broader society. We are a richer culture when nobody has to code switch or stay in the closet or not share their beliefs, that they're non-oppressive beliefs. Because there's a lot of false equivalency about why can't I share my Nazi viewpoint? It's like because you're a Nazi. <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean, so yeah. To me, to me, like part of it is, um, I I will never give up that vision of a world where we create access for everyone to all the good things that our culture has to offer. I'll never give up on that. And that will always show up in my work, I think. That's wonderful. And actually, that's another good um, prompt to share a little bit more of your work if you're so willing. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and you can mm. choose. Mm. Mm. Um. All right. This is the poem. This is hard because I. Okay. I'm, not a poet. I'm not a poet. So it's like, no, this is a safe space, Tony. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I wrote poetry in high school and then like my friend and I have made fun of it for decades. And so like, I think the poetry thing is just like, Oh my God, I'm actually doing this. Um, this, this is more of a mental health one, but it's called in case of emergency break glass. Um, traversing the sertraline Canyon, trying to find my way back to me and to you. I resigned myself to another pill to complete my circuits and wait to cross. Sifting through the nesting dolls of lives we and I might have lived, is it better or worse to see so many roads not taken, choked with weeds, impenetrable? How much time is left for me, for us, to do the things we've talked about into the night, by the fire, beneath the stars, under whirring blades? As with all good things, I always want more. Are the windows closing in or opening? Let's find out. Thank you. That's that. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you you undersold yourself. That was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the poets are all cringing. If there's any poets watching, sorry. I just no, 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 no. <laughs> my my all time favorite tweet is oh, I can't remember who did it. Once again, I'm terrible. I I write down attribution. I'm just not good at, at thinking of it at the time. But it's we get it, poets. Things are like other things. <laughs> It's accurate. <laughs> I, love I love it. I love it. I love it so much. So yeah, thank you for inviting me to read. That's not something I usually do. So. Oh, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And actually, we have just a little bit longer. So I want to ask you, because we've read a poem and an essay, and we've talked about um, the newsletter and all these amazing things that you're working on. Um, what made you want to write the great American novel? So like, why was that the thing you had to abandon in order to create all of these other rich projects? Two things. 
One is I had a dream and a story came to me and I started writing. This is in 2007. I started writing day and night for six months. I ignored my kids, my laundry. At one point, I like left my car running and went into a store. Thank God I live in a small town. Like, cause I was working on a plot line and I was like, Oh my God, this is it. I'm a fiction writer. It's official. I can do it. I can do this. And it's actually pretty good narrator. It was not pretty good, but it was like, Oh my God, this is what writing can be like after years of freelancing for magazines. And I never finished that novel. And I, I never, I think I kept waiting for that feeling to come back and it never really did. And but it really did feel like that's a common story. Like people were like conduits and the idea comes and we got to chase it. Right. As the years passed, I think it became more of an ego trip. I wanted to do the book signing, not do the work to write the novel. Straight up. And I have ADHD. So writing alone in a silo is not a thing that's easy for me. So I may still write a novel. I don't know, but it, it was, I think letting go of that dream is one of the best gifts I've given myself. It, it doesn't mean it's gone forever. Um, it just means that it's not waiting in the wings and stopping me from bringing other things in. Yeah, I think that's really empowering. And I share that that old dream with you of the great American novel. And I think it was something like from, you know, in school, you're reading essentially the great American novels and you're sort of. Um, conditioned to think that if you're going to be a writer, that's what you write. You write like Of Mice and Men or The Great Gatsby or something, you know, um, definitive. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder yeah. where that comes from. No one ever told me if you're going to be a writer, you have to write Of War and Peace, you know, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if like the MFA programs spur that on. I don't know because I love genre fiction. I love it unapologetically. I like, yeah. I don't, I don't care for literary fiction mo- for most literary fiction. I haven't read enough of it, frankly. And I'm an English lit major, but yeah, I love genre fic. And I, I mean, I think if I can plug one though, literary fic, it was, um, Wilderness by, uh, Lance Weller, Lance Weller. It's one of the best novels I've read in the last 20 years. It's phenomenal. So. I haven't read that. I'll add it to the list. So I think it's his only novel so far, too. But just, yeah. It's been a while since I read it, but, like, it made me sob uncontrollably and laugh until I cried at, at two different points in the in the work. And to me, it's like, okay, yeah, I can, yeah. It was very, very good. It's a rough okay. story. Good. It touches on all the emotions. I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but genre fic lets you escape a little bit more, I think. I think reality is hard enough, especially now, that I'd rather read about a, another world or another time or a meet cute or whatever. I mean, yeah. Honestly, I've been reading a lot of thrillers. Um, that's like all I can read at night. Uh, in part because if I'm reading something really like, not that it can't be literary, but something very literary. I'll want to be up and like underline things and be thinking and it'll keep me up. It's so like read, yeah, it's work. Exactly. So I read the, you know, the dime store thrillers and it something about the worst case scenario um, novel, even though it's <laughs> we're sort of living in a worst case scenario. Yeah. It's like, OK, it could always be worse. <laughs> yeah. It's like calming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally get it. I totally get it. It's pretty crazy. (laughs) But 
I am glad. I feel like I learned a lesson uh, from you on how to um, uh, release myself from that uh, externally imposed uh, perception of what a writer is and that goal, that great American novel, and to find the thing that you really just love doing a playground or a sandbox or whatever to rediscover your creativity. So that's, that is invaluable. I'm so glad. I'm really so glad. That's great. great I hope others derive something from that too, because it's been, it's been a real great experience. I'm sure they will. And you'll have to come back when the new essay is published and when the podcast begins and you have so many things, so many irons in the fire. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony, for joining us again. And we'll look forward to the next conversation, but it's been such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tony. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, if you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, as always, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster to help me keep this podcast going. It's a one-woman show. Um, and as you can see from various glitches throughout the episodes, I need all the help I can get. So um, every little bit counts. And thank you to our sponsors, patrons, and patronesses, all of whom are mentioned on the writermothermonster.com webpage under the support tab. You can join them. Um, and thank you all so much again for uh, coming tonight. And I'll see you next week.